Radio Mano Papachango. Chris, my name is Jimmy. Um, I'm currently looking up at a sky under the stars. There's, a, there's an airplane. I'm uh, working at a Boy Scout camp in the middle of nowhere in Wisconsin right now. And uh, I am sponsoring the wilderness survival uh, overnight. We sort of just walk into the middle of the woods and uh, set up little shelters and sleep there for the night and uh, I'm just sort of glancing up the sky thinking about your podcast thanks for uh, all the memories and the the weird sort of one-sided relationship where I know intimate details about your life and you have no clue who I am uh, but uh, it's definitely sort of helped me on my journey and uh, just sending out peace and love See ya. Hey, Chris. This is John calling from the city of brotherly love from Philadelphia. Um, that's what they call it. And I am walking uh, two blocks down from my last apartment to stay with a friend after deciding to separate from the person I, I moved here with. And uh, we both decided that uh, uh, we're not ready for a committed relationship. So, you know, you talk about, uh, in one of your last podcasts, about um, having too much of something or too little, like too much money or too little money or too much space and too little space. Um, and then those things that you can never have enough of. And I was thinking about, um, I was thinking about love in the sense of like compassion and caring, not, not just like pleasure. Because if we really just want someone else for pleasure, and you decide to not be with them, then, you know, I think we make the decision to just cut them out of our lives completely. But if we love someone, you know, I don't think there's a reason to, like, eliminate them out of your life. And I've been trying to keep that in mind as I'm walking to this new, <laughs> new apartment, like two blocks down from, I guess, what is technically my ex. But um, I'm going to call them my friend uh, because we both just had an enlightening conversation about not being tied down because we want to make lives for ourselves, but we like each other. Um, so yeah, just wanted to call because I've been meaning to record a message and your podcast and your book talk about, you know, not putting a ladder up against the wall. That's something you don't want to do or build a house you don't want to live in. 
Um, that doesn't mean you have to hate someone. Uh, this was a really sad thing, but at the same time, I'm feeling like relationships with people can be amazing, because that's all we have, really. So there's no reason to, you know, hate someone because they're giving you a lack of something. Um, it's all right here, you know, two blocks away from me, uh, and more. Uh, we just need to live the lives that we want. So thanks again, Chris. Hey, Chris. Uh, my name is Keely. I am a 25-year-old bartender from Portland, Oregon. Um, I was just calling in uh, response to one of your Roma Roma episodes. Um, you'd mentioned that there was, I think it was 29 or 39, that uh, you don't usually get a lot of uh, women responding to your podcast. And uh, I guess I just want to put my voice out there and say... Uh, me and me and my best friend both listen to your podcast and like um just want to say that we're out here and we we listen to you and we we dig your stuff and uh, really appreciate all the weird shit you talk about, man. It's uh, it's cool. Um, and just want to say thanks. Uh, much love. What up, ladies and gentlemen? Thank you for those intros. You can send those to intro at tangentiallyspeaking dot com. Try to keep them under a minute. 30 seconds is even better. Reminds me of the story of the guy who wrote a long book and um, somebody said, uh, why did it have to be so long? And he said, because I didn't have time to write a shorter one. Yeah, it's hard. Harder to, to be concise in these things, but don't worry about it. I Sometimes I edit them down a little bit. Um, I love the spontaneity of them and I love the, you know, the sort of people doing what they're doing, the guy walking down the street from the apartment that he shared with the woman that he just broke up with. I mean, talk about on-the-scene reporting. Thank you for that. I really appreciate your uh, your trust, not only in me, but in the fact that, you know, there are thousands of people who are going to listen to this. And when you share something like that, even if you're not using your name, it's still intimidating and frightening and um, and you're trusting that the people that are going to hear it uh, are going to have some generosity of spirit. And that is a fact. You folks, I know I keep saying this and I know it sounds like I'm blowing smoke up your ass, but the fact is I go out on these van trips. It's been four months now. I've met dozens, if not uh, over a hundred of um, listeners, people, I'd see the van on the road and, you know, flag us down and we say hi. That happened in Canada. That happened in California. Um, you know, people just we run into or we meet wherever we meet them. And, and man, I have not met anyone that I didn't like, anyone that wasn't cool. It wasn't a special, generous fucking spirit. So thank you for your trust and, and for, um, forming this weird community or community of weirdos. I'm not sure what it is, but um, in any case, this episode is with my buddy, Tony Paratet. He's been on before. He's an author. Although when I met him, all he had written were travel guides uh, 30 years ago or whenever that was, I think he wrote insight guides. Uh, he was a journalist and um, he's written books that, his books tend to be in that space where history and sexuality overlap, 
which I think is an excellent place to be. It's such a an underserved, underexamined part of history, partly because of our biases and our taboos and we're all freaked out and scared of sex, but also partly because it's really hard to research. You know, how do you find out about Napoleon's sex life or, um, you know, the truth about Catherine the Great or Genghis Khan or, you know, whatever, or, or normal people in medieval England? What were their sex lives like? I mean, I can tell you as someone who spent years writing a book about sex and prehistory that it takes a lot of digging before you can you can find any sort of reliable information um but it's so fascinating because sex is such an important part of our lives of course so to imagine uh or to even research and study history without an understanding and appreciation of the sensuality and the yearnings and the desires and the frustrations of the people that we're talking about is like it's all black and white there's no color there's no juice you know people are motivated by sex a lot more than they're motivated by money even i think or power it's it's um a huge part of human motivation and so when we don't understand it there's so much that we're missing um tony's last book is called cuba libre um he's been on before to talk about that but in this case we're speaking more specifically about um, the sex lives of Fidel Castro, Che Guevara, and um, a lot of the other lesser-known figures, including a lot of women who were central in the Cuban Revolution. Um, and of course, you know, Cubans are such sensual people, so it's especially interesting to think about um, the sensuality and the sexuality and um, how that colored and... and um, uh, sort of motivated or influenced the course of historical events in Cuba and elsewhere. This episode is brought to you by Sunbasket. As I've mentioned previously, you can get a discount of half off your first two orders at Sunbasket with no obligation to continue. So it's basically essentially a freebie because the, it turns out that the portions come to five bucks each with the discount and as i've said before ad nauseum you're spending five bucks on a fucking coffee at starbucks so you're getting dinner for five bucks hell yeah and the food is uh organic produce is made from clean ingredients uh it's top quality shit it's delivered to your door not shit top quality stuff let me say top quality produce and ingredients delivered to your door um and yeah, for five bucks a portion, I don't, I, I can't imagine why you wouldn't try it, why everyone wouldn't try it. Um, and if you're on the road or your life just doesn't, you live in a place where things can't be delivered, I'm sure you have some friends or some relatives, especially in my case, I'm thinking of, you know, people like my mom, people like Stanley Krippner, um, people who are older and living alone and they don't get around to cooking for themselves. It's a hassle, you know? Let's face it, it's a hassle. All the shopping, all the preparation, the chopping the vegetables, the finding the stuff. You're not going to sit down and make yourself a really nice meal, um, no matter how old you are, if you're living alone. It's, you know, it's just not happening. Um, but if it's delivered to your door and all you really have to do is saute the stuff and throw in the spices and, you know, follow some simple instructions, then maybe you will. And that's a major increase in your quality of life at a very low cost and that's what it's about right 
maximize quality of life at minimal cost. And Sunbasket has found a way to do it. So I encourage everybody, give them a try. Sunbasket.com slash forward slash TS for tangentially speaking. Um, the intro from John, I think his name was John, uh, walking down the street and talking about God, he sounded really clear uh, for somebody who had just had that pivotal conversation um, that led to him moving to a new apartment. Um, It reminds me of something I've been thinking about recently, sort of a grand schema for understanding relationships. Because I look back at, at the major relationships in my life, and I think most people are like this. You sort of, you keep, stumbling forward away from what didn't work into the mystery trying to find what will work but not really knowing what was missing until you find it um and i've come i've come up with this idea that there are three essential elements of the sort of intimate relationships that we're examining here there's sexual chemistry there's compatibility and there's love and of course within those three categories there's all sorts of variation and these things can rise and fall over time and so on but I think that what happens is that we enter into relationships based upon one or maybe two of these factors and it takes a long time for the absence of the third to really start to hurt enough that you consider stepping away and this is the tragedy of relationships i look back in my life for example and i can I can very clearly see that I had relationships with women that where the sexual connection was really strong and the love was really strong. And by love, what I mean is, is mutual respect and the kind of, the kind of courageous sharing that we, you know, we yearn to tell our secrets. We yearn to admit our flaws and our mistakes and you need to trust somebody a lot before that kind of stuff can flow and that creates a a kind of love that is real it's it's amazing and when you're young especially or at least in my case when I was young I thought that that was that kind of love was the scarcest thing in the world, the most difficult to find, and that I was so lucky that at 17 I found it, at 21 I found it. I thought, man, I found it twice, I'll never find it again. And and even if it weren't so scarce and I wasn't afraid I'd never find it again, just the nature of it is so personal and so individual and so unique that it's almost incomprehensible that love isn't enough. You know, it's, it's 
incomprehensible that I would come to the conclusion that I'm better off and she's better off separating even though we love each other so much or to put it another way because we love each other so much but if you have two of those elements I mean I think of a relationship I had in my 20s that went goes off and on and super passionate fantastic sex I love this woman um I still love her but we weren't compatible um I won't get into the details but there were certain things about the way she dealt with challenges uh that were very different from the way I dealt with them and uh There were deceptions that I understood in retrospect why they happened, and I didn't blame her, but still, that happened, undermined my trust. Uh, There were, you know, everyone makes mistakes, but there's like a pattern of mistakes, and you start to see like, yeah, I don't think I can live my life with this person, even though I love them, and I love fucking them. I love looking at her. I, you know, I love everything. I, I respect her. and But the day-to-day, just, it's too hard. It's too much tension. Even baseline anxiety level. Some people just have a higher anxiety level than others. You know, it's like a rat and a tiger. Like, you'd think the tiger would kill the rat in a minute. But if the tiger doesn't want to kill the rat, then the fucking rat's going to kill the tiger because the tiger's going to be tense all the time with this fucking rat running around tigers aren't good at dealing with stress rats are they're just basic incompatibilities that happen between people it's nobody's fault it's just the way it is you know some people like experimental jazz music playing all the time other people want blues nobody's right or wrong there that's just a question of compatibility and for me it was very hard to to come to the conclusion that I need all three of those things. You know, the other hand, I've had a relationship, an important relationship in my life with a woman where the compatibility was really high. We loved hanging out together. We laughed all the time. She's easy to be around. We like the same music. We like the same food. We like the same kind of people. Hey, great. Everything's cool. And I love her. I still love her. She's fucking fantastic. One of my favorite people in the world. But there was no sexual spark. There was no... And she's beautiful, by the way. So maybe it's just I'm too ugly for her. I don't know. But there was no chemistry there. Um, For her, sex was like, yeah, yeah, we could have sex or we could watch a movie or we could go for a walk. It was all kind of like in the same category. Whereas for me, obviously, sex is interesting, fascinating, you know, a portal into other worlds, a way to explore our subconscious, like all this kind of stuff for her was none of that. And we spent years together. Now, I guess maybe love, you know, that's that's the commonality, right? There are relationships where there's love and compatibility that lasts a long time before the lack of sexual chemistry kicks in or really becomes overwhelming. And there's love and sex and, and 
it'll be a long time or a while before the the absence of compatibility kicks in and becomes um, oppressive. So we say, okay, love is the common thing there that's never really missing. And that's what leads to the conclusion that I was totally wrong when I was young. And I thought that love was the scarce thing. Love is kind of everywhere. As I get older and am less judgmental of people and more understanding of how much weight people are carrying and that everybody's sort of doing the best they can, um, it becomes much easier to see the, um, the light in people that makes you love them to the point where I've kind of come to the conclusion now that almost anybody, if I spent enough time with them and we found ways to open up enough to each other, I would end up loving almost anybody. I've said that before on the podcast, and I think that's sort of a common thing as we get older and, and, and have more empathy with people that, man, everybody's worthy of love. And if you spend enough time with someone and, and hear what they've gone through and what they're going through, and um, it becomes almost impossible not to love them. So I guess what I'm saying is um, that guy just reminded me of this whole thing that I was thinking of and, and how it sounds, you know, t- to me that he loves this woman and I don't know what they're sexual connection was like but it sounds like the compatibility was missing and to recognize that is hard but I think it's the key to happiness because you can't really spend day after day after day with someone that you're not compatible with I hear about these couples that like argue about money or they argue about what kind of furniture they're going to put in their house or they argue about whether they're going to, you know, what kind of food they eat. It's like, why would you fucking marry somebody where you don't agree on those basic things? I think a lot of people jump into relationships just because they're, they feel a storm coming and they just want shelter. That's not the right reason to do it. Speaking of which, if you hear all this wind in the background, there's a storm rolling in. I'm sitting on a porch in Crestone, Colorado. Beautiful place, magical little town, and there's a storm coming in across the valley. I can see it miles away. All right, that's enough talk from me. I'm going to play you out with a tune that is uh, apropos of this subject. It's by a guy who listens to the podcast, uh, Seamus Og. OG. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly. The song is called Don't You Miss Me. It's from an album called Best Masala Tea, also known as Best Masala Chai. And uh, you can find that at SeamusOg.Bandcamp.com. You can download it, listen to it for free, whatever. You know how that works. Really nice guitar work on this song. Very kind of groovy and bluesy and nostalgic. I like it a lot. So this is uh, Don't You Miss Me by Seamus Og from the album Best Masala Tea. And then you'll hear from uh, Tony Paratan about the sex lives of uh, Cuban revolutionaries. Thanks for listening. Bye.
follow And I know my smiles lie And I know where they die And do you really see me? Do you see me at all? So take more time goes I'm a roll Ladies and gentlemen, I'm here with Tony Perotet uh, for our third podcast together. Uh, I think we're doing this one so that he can write off his uh, his trip to Topanga as a business expense. It's such an expedition. <laughs> he came in a helicopter, so it's a significant expense. So, Tony, what's going on, buddy? I'm doing all right. Just, you know, back from Havana, uh, checking out the, the delights of the West Coast. Yeah, you you were in Havana when like three days ago. Yeah, yeah, I was doing uh, hanging out with Che Guevara's son. Was the was Che Junior? Che Junior, uh, Ernestito, little Ernest. As they, is, is that really what Che stands for? Is it Ernest? Uh, no, Che no. is um, uh, his name. His real name was Ernesto Guevara. Uh-huh. So in uh, Latin America, if you're the the son, it's like little Ernest, Ernestito. Uh, is that but Che is like an Argentine expression. It's like buddy or in Australian, like the Australian uh-huh. mate. So that in Argentina, everyone's like Che, come on, ask, 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 Che. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and so the, and so the Cubans all called him Che. 
You know, because it's like that's what he was saying all the time. It's like yeah, uh, it became so his nickname. Jay, it's not even his name. No, no, it's a nickname. That's what's some often in you know. It's like well or so. That's how it's often used. Yeah, but yeah, but, but yeah like buddy, you know, hey, hey, oh, hey, Jay, guess this. You know, yeah. what are you doing, Jay? Your mate. Right. You know. Wow, I didn't know that. I thought mm. it was short for you know, like Nacho is short for Ignacio or something. Yeah. You know, like. Yeah! Oh, wow, Che is like dude. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So dude he, he Guevara. Yeah, he was El Che. He was like the dude. The you know? dude. <laughs> hey! Wow, the great Lebowski was Che Guevara. Yeah. The, um, wow, the dude. All right. Yeah. So I'm just trying to wrap my head around that. So what is it in, in Venezuela? Or is, or is it Argentina? Or they say este, este all the time. Este. Like, ah. like they do this este. Because uh, I remember there was a joke. I think it is Argentina. Because there was a joke about like how does an Argentinian dog bark, and it was like it's the well. Uh, gee, I don't know that one. Yeah, I lived there a couple know? of years, and yeah. I don't know that one. Oh well, I was thinking, like you know, in Venezuela, it's sort of like chevere, chevere, everyone's like chevere. everything's like cool, chevere, yeah, chevere. chevere. You know, but there's all every culture has its sort of weird words that you know, they yeah. throw in for you know, and you're sitting right going. Yeah, that's right. I do that. I have a habit of doing yeah. that. I'm trying to think of what to say. Like, yeah, <laughs> you know, how come you don't speak with an American accent, Tony? I try You've to stay been exotic here so long. I, I have a tutor to keep my Australian accent perfect because <laughs> otherwise, I'd be just like, I got to stay, you know, different. Otherwise, I'd be like every other American. Exactly, it's my brand. Another like white dude in his yeah. 50s. Except now there's, uh, but now there's all these Australians in New York. Yeah. I used to be like the only Australian, just yeah. about. You know, yeah. there wasn't many, and now me and Crocodile Dundee, and you know, yeah. and now it's flooded with Australians. Yeah, you know, they're all running. Can you coffee do shops. an American accent? No, a very bad. Let's way. do the rest of this interview with my bad Australian <laughs> accent and your bad American oh, that'd accent. That would be terrifying for people out there. All right, mate. <laughs> oh, God, I, I don't even... My my Australian accent is really shit, I'll tell you. Yeah, it's, you know... We're going to the worse. uni, going down to the, what do you call, bars. Everything's got a the nickname. Pub. Down in the pub. pub. There's not the pubby or there's some <laughs> stupid ending in E sound. Uh... No, I think the pub is just there's the pub. uni and there's the, 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 the oh, what is it? The, the ball, the footy, footy. The footy. Yeah. And everyone's like Johnny. John becomes Jono. Everything's like an O and a. Right. Yeah, it's, right. A, it's a thing. You miss yeah. Australia? Oh, yeah, but there are a lot. You know, I miss it. I mean, I'm living in New York, so around November every year. Yeah. It's like, fuck, what am I doing here? You know, right. like, you know, but I get back at least once or twice a year now. So it's, yeah. you know, I write about Australia a lot. The American magazines like to get me to write about Australia because they come up with something completely different. So if they're sending some poor dude from, you know, Minnesota or whatever to right. spend a week down there. So, I mean, I love it. But I just can't live there permanently. It's like, uh, I don't know, I just... I mean, I left there, you know, when I was like 25 and, you know, just traveling around and never, never really went back. So, uh, but I love dipping into it. What would be the problem with living there permanently? Uh, I think the isolation sort of gets me. Um, I have a tendency to feel sort of melancholy and solitary. Mm. And in Australia, you sort of feel that, you know, in the yeah. air a bit. And it, it's just, it just takes so long to, to get other places. And I mean, even though it's like Sydney's now, a hugely cosmopolitan, you know, exciting place. And it's like, and so many great restaurants and so many great bars. It's like, whatever. But 
I used to go back sometimes for like three months, mm. you know, like, you know, but, you know, after about six weeks, you've sort of seen all the friends you want to see like twice, you know, and you've been to all the bars, new bars and restaurants, and you sort of go, oh, you know, maybe I'm just like, you know, short concentration span or something but in New York everything is changing all the time mm. you know and you go away for a week and you come back and it's, it's kind of different there's new mm. things some are closed some are new so it's sort of like even living there is like you're perpetually travelling you're like because right. you walk down the street and say like, shit I hadn't seen that uh, so I find yeah I I mean, I, I, like, I really, I think it's a personality disorder that I can't live in Australia because everyone else goes there and goes, you know, I love it. I want to yeah. move there. I'm like, you know, this is the, this is the dream. But, yeah. uh, You've been to New Zealand? It's nice enough. It's a little chilly. <laughs> <laughs> but it's like, you want to go to New Zealand, go to Vermont instead. It's going to be the same. They've got really? the cheese, they got the Vermont. sheep. <laughs> You know, uh, like, I just don't really get it because you just go like another hour and you're in Australia, uh, and it's like Sydney's got the beaches and the, you know, the, this outdoor culture and the, the sh- you know, the food, and it's like it's really just it's fun. Yeah. It's a place to visit for a holiday. It's awesome. And the Australian Tourism Board is not actually paying me to say that. It's actually <laughs> like I mean, if you're in February in New York and yeah. you like hop on a plane and in 24 hours you, you know the door opens and you just smell you know the, the eucalyptus and feel that warmth and it's like oh my god mm. you know, and it's like you go from like you know it's like you know, not, you know 28 degrees to 82 it's, it's just like completely suddenly reversed and I don't know it's you know in Bondi Beach I used to live there and mm. you know it's just like they just sort of cleaned it all up. The water's perfect and diving mm. in there. It's it's a scene. Yeah, you know. And, yeah, definitely. Yeah, but every American who goes there, uh, like within a day, is like, oh, I got to move here because yeah. it's like a, it's it's like an idealized version of California. It's like before California got fucked up. Right. You know, so it's like sort of a vision of California in the seventies or something. Right. You know, before Charles Manson or no, maybe in the sixties then. Like, you know, Charles like, Manson lived right around here. Yeah. Actually, I, I did a podcast recently with a woman, uh, Sean Corn who uh, is from a, from Topanga, and she said that Manson's first, the the first person they killed was like two doors oh, down yeah, from right. here, right here on Old Topanga. Right, right, right. Yeah. And they never f- proved it until like years later or yeah, something, right? They figured yeah, it out. Right. But it was um, before the Tate LaBanquianca, 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 whatever the fuck right. that is. Yeah. But yeah, no, he's... And it's a weedy little guy, you know, wandering around, but, you know, but it's strangely charismatic and... Oh, Manson? Yeah. Apparently he had a huge dick, too. Is that right? Yeah, I read that right. somewhere. Okay. Someone told me that. Because right. a lot of his thing was, like, sexual um, seduction of right. these young women. Mm. And he had sort of uh, this cult of, like, a sexual cult and, you know, fueled by drugs as well, of course. Right. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, they would go and pick up runaways. Right. That was the thing. They go around in a van in San Francisco and uh, look for you know lost-looking young women. Yeah. And the women that were already with him would go out and say, "Hey, are you okay? Yeah. Do you need a place to stay? Right, Come right. with us." And because you know they're approached by women roughly their age, it was more likely that yeah. Yeah, so that was the that was the thing. Yeah, Topanga. This is this is the scene. I mean, this is your first time or second time in second Topanga? Second time. Yeah. I came late at night once and you got stranded. Yes. Yeah. The whole Wi-Fi Uber thing doesn't quite work as well. No. Up here. As no, well. and the Uber guys they don't like to come up here because mm. so it's an investment to get here. Right. Um, but yeah, Topanga is uh, uh, famous for three things mainly: um, the Manson thing. 
The first swingers club in the world was here, um, Sandstone, profiled oh, yeah, by, by Gay Talese. All right. Um, in Thy Neighbor's Wife, big bestseller. Uh, that was up here. And uh, it wasn't really, I mean, it wasn't a club in the sense of like a restaurant. It was a, a house, a private home. And the couple who ran it, um, or who lived there, started having these parties. And then it became a thing in the you know early 70s, I guess. Mm. And um, yeah, and then like you could become a member. And so it be, mm. did become a club. And the woman, there was a great article about the woman... Uh, I wish I could remember, and, and if I do remember, I'll put up a link, or if somebody listening reminds me, I'll put up a link on the webpage. Um, Pamela something. She was the wife. The guys died. Uh, his died maybe 10 years ago, but she was still alive, and this woman tracked her down and found her. She was living outside of Reno, and it was all about her life, and she was this really adventurous, like you know, fearless woman. And it, the article talks about their marriage and how Sandstone started and how they got into this whole, you know, sexual liberty kind of thing. And anyway, the, it's a really great life story. And toward the end of the article, the woman talks about how this lady is into um, predate, um what do you say predatory cats big cats right. she's doing these interviews at her house and they're like pumas walking around in the living room Jesus. yeah and, and the journalist is terrified i don't remember it's a man or a woman is you know just literally terrified every day she goes there to do another interview and it's like right. oh my god you know, torn to pieces yeah exactly yeah. wow and what was the third famous thing oh the third famous thing is uh, musicians oh. uh, a lot of um, famous 60s 70s musicians lived back here Neil Young um, Crosby Stills Nash and Young he had a place just across the canyon here um, Marvin Gaye oh. Billy Preston uh, Mama Cass Jefferson Airplane lots of them had right. houses back here and so Charles Manson would have met because he was always like well, he out hung out with one of the Beach Boys really I guess Beach for Boys, a while yeah. and a lot of the f- film directors and you know Hollywood yeah. people do you know that Roman Polanski was, you know Sharon Tate was his wife right yeah and he was on his way back from Europe uh, and he was supposed to be here that night but he missed his connecting flight in New York he was flying with um, Jersey Kaczynski Oh wow! Yeah, the, the has great a pretty Polish, dark uh, view of the world. Who who killed himself? Yeah. Uh, interestingly, well, he killed himself in the right way. He was he was old and sick. He'd I think he'd gotten a diagnosis like a bad diagnosis, and yeah. he suffocated himself in a bathtub. I think. Oh jeez! Yeah. All right. He wrote the Painted Bird. You ever read that? No. It's a very interesting novel uh, about his life it's a memoir of his early life i guess his family was all killed um in yeah, concentration camps sort of, yeah. yeah and he wrote an amazing very slender book which is like one page it's like a history of violence mm. and, and going through you know through the ages and it's like one page vignettes of incredible brutality oh and it's like yeah it's a very uplifting the painted bird is is supposedly a true story about him wandering Europe as a small child because like his family was taken away and he just started walking 
right. and various people. And, and, and he was um, mute. Yeah, he was, he couldn't speak for years. Uh. And so he was this little mute boy walking around through war-torn Europe. Um, and then later, like in the 90s, I think, some some controversy accrued around the book. Some people claiming it couldn't have been true. There were some, who knows. It has know. a bit of a tin drum sound to it. Like, yeah, you know, it's like, right, yeah. Tin Drum being the film by... It was based on a novel, but about uh, the little kid who goes around and he just... He, he had the Baron von Munchausen syndrome. That what it was? It, yeah. He stopped growing. Oh, yeah. Yeah, right. uh, from the trauma. Right. So he was like a tiny little adult. Right. Yeah. Germany itself. Yeah. 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 Crazy. Anyway, anyway. Tony <laughs> is a writer, as uh, most of you know, because I've appended an intro to this <laughs> in the future. In the future, I have appended an intro. <laughs> <laughs> Work that one out. <laughs> so confusing. <laughs> and we've known each other for how long? Uh, Since '89, I think. Yeah. 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 Crazy. Crazy. So, yeah. Thirtieth anniversary. There we go. Cheers. Yeah. Cheers, man. Cheers. <laughs> and we're drinking green tea. Because this is Topanga Canyon. We're gonna go no, because we're old. Because we're old now. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so you were in uh, where were you? you were in Havana three days ago with uh, Che's son, son yeah, he, who and, does motorcycle trips. You're telling yeah, me, yeah, yeah. He started a, a company um, uh, taking. He's always loved uh, Harley Davidsons, and he was repairing them all through his life. He was also a, he was a, a commando. He was like uh, you know, he did like many different jobs, uh, but he always loved these Harley Davidsons. And then as the you know, the economy's gotten worse and worse, and there's more openings. Uh, he's an Argentine friend of his of his uh, of his uncle's. Said like, "We'll start a company, and you'll take people around in these giant, beautiful, beautiful Harleys that they sort of s- smuggled into Cuba um, via Panama." And he's like, "He's always like, so we got to hear a little help from Harry Potter. You know, they're all sort of like brought in one by one." Mm. But it's, it, I mean, the American cars are super famous in you know in in Cuba. You know, these old Chevrolets, and right. but people don't realize that the police all drove uh, Harleys back in the 40s and 50s. Right. So there's oh, an array okay. of vintage Harleys ah. as well, and they're experts at keeping those going and uh, yeah, getting finding the parts and whatever. Mm. But the ones he does is they're, they're big, beautiful, shiny. Harley's and um, you ever meet my buddy Richard Schweid? No, he wrote a book called um, uh, Chase Fidel's Oldsmobile and Chase Chevrolet or something like that about the cars. Uh, yeah, the whole thing about the cars in Cuba. Yeah, the car, they're amazing. Yeah, they're, and then and they're really there. You know, it's like some of them have been these days. A lot of them have been gussied up. You know, they're like you know mm. frou frou pink and whatever, and they're all like restored but a lot of them aren't and in fact um then you had to get the, the expensive ones as you know like 50 bucks but for 10 cents there's these these roots that go back and forth in havana you know and you hail them down uh give them give them a coin and they'll it's, they're like little buses and so you squeeze in their carros and they're and like five six people and they're blasting salsa there's no floor exhaust is you know pouring through but you got the windows down and you're driving along the the seafront malecon you know the wind's in your hair and it's like Blasting away, it's, you know, it's the quintessential Havana experience for yeah. my money. It's just like, man, this is this is so fun. You spent a lot of time in Cuba working yeah. on your latest book, Cuba Libre, which we talked about in the previous episode. Of, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I was. Um, I mean, I first went there in the mid '90s. You know, when it was like totally screwed up, and it was like the, they call it the special period after the uh, Soviet 
uh, union fell to bits. So all the subsidies ended. Uh, suddenly everyone was broke. Uh, and there was no food. It was kind of like a dismal time. It was a very interesting time, but kind of a depressing time. Did uh, you go there like doing a travel writing gig? Or it was a, yeah, it was an assignment from mm. uh, then. I was writing for Australians, uh, and I had, you had to go through a third country then. So I went via the island of Nassau, and I contacted some company, and they said, yeah, "Bring a thousand dollars in cash and meet a man named Lionel in the in the." old airport which is the disused wing of the of the NASA airport you go in there and it's like wires hanging down and like from the ceiling and it's like Jesus and then Lionel turns up this is like dude in a pork pie hat you know and you, know, you give him a thousand bucks and he gives you these handwritten vouchers and points to a Sikorsky air, you know propeller plane sitting out in the tarmac and like six other people you know, nervously get in and you sort of fly low across the Caribbean into Havana. And I remember flying over Cuba then and there was all these beautiful roads and not a single car moving. Mm. You know, it was, like, it was like Twilight Zone. Like it was like mm. some, some horrible disaster had occurred. And, I rem- and when I was there, I got, the, I got the only hire car that was available in Havana at that time and you had to get black market uh, petrol. And I drove it out to Pina del Rio along this beautiful eight-lane highway and it was the only car on the road just cruising down it was a, and I picked up hitchhikers wow. along the way and I was you know I lived in Argentina so my Spanish was pretty good and so you know asking them what you know what was it like and, and dropping them along the way some mum some some woman her mum was in hospital you know and, and she couldn't get to this town so I drive her to this town and that was the way it was a really extraordinary experience right Wow. And, and so Wait, what was the story? Oh, because there was no money. Because there was no there was money. No, Everyone's no money. like, yeah, they got no petrol. They got... And they were getting oil from Venezuela, maybe? Or... But at that stage, it was all from Russia. Right. Yeah, the, the right. Venezuela thing kicked in after that. Right. You know, when Chavez got in and stuff, and suddenly they were like right. buddies. But um, but it was, a, it was a great experience. And then, and then I went um, after uh, when Obama opened it up, uh, and it was the first private jet to fly from Miami to um, Havana. And you was, were on it? Yeah. It was, How'd you arrange that? Uh, I got invited. Some friends were, were doing it. And it, it, there's two American dudes, uh, Colin and, and uh, Michael, who've been there forever. And they just sort of set it up and went down there and stayed for three or four days and um, hanging out you know, in the, in the one good hotel that sort of had Wi-Fi now. You know, and there was a couple of little restaurants and everything had sort of been they had changed. You know, the, this private enterprise thing was starting to kick in. So it was, like, it was actually... Uh, I was like, wow, it's like science fiction, mm. you know, and the places, and everyone's really optimistic, you know, things are changing, relations with the United States, surely the blockade is almost over, you know, and so it was like this incredible sense of optimism. Rolling Stones was playing there, mm. you know, that was right. like an extremely, you know, incredible moment, and that all, that's when I started to do the book. In fact, this is sort of an Obama-era book in a way because mm. the, the flight started direct from New York to Havana. So I could go down for a week, do some work, do whatever, put in my requests in the weird archives that they have there and the, you know, the nutty things. And, or they'd tell me I had to get a new visa and I'd be, okay, I'll go back to New York and hang out while they got their shit together and then I'd fly back. So I was zipping back and forth, um, staying usually for like 10 days, two weeks. And then I still... Uh, keeping up my life in New York, but having a little, you know, having Havana time and then New York. It was, it was a nice, nice thing. Oh, bad. And it's still, I mean, the, the flights are still going, you know, so everything's mm. still intact, but the sense of optimism just like evaporated. It's You're just right. like, you know, now it's like everyone's waiting to, you know, for another special period. They think it's going to be driven yeah. back to sort of that, that sort of Stone Age, you know, time. That was basically they got, they got nothing. Electricity going out. 
And I, is there uh, how to how to phrase this? Uh, I've never been to Cuba, but um, you know, I often hear from people who who talk about how friendly the people are, how like uh, like just the sensation of being alive is so great there that you know people take care of each other and there's all this sort of um creativity and you know very positive uh picture of it and of course coming from where i come from given my sort of bias against civilization part of what i think is like oh civilization is breaking down there and so these qualities of human nature, this sort of innate generosity and curiosity and creativity, these things are allowed to flourish because people aren't standing around staring at little screens in their hands all day. Or, you know, I was talking with a friend the other day who we were talking about how things that used to be part of the social fabric have become privatized and commercialized now. Like even... Like he pointed out the example of State Farm insurance, mm. like a good neighbor, State Farm is there, right? Uh, it used to be you're, you had a problem in your house, your neighbor came over and helped you fix it. Or your house burned down, all your neighbors got together and built a new house in a week. And now you got a house. And when your neighbor has a problem, you helped him. Now it's all privatized. It's a corporation, et cetera. Is there any truth? In, do you feel there's any truth to the idea that certain aspects of life in Cuba are better precisely because the infrastructure is so bad. And you know what I mean? Well, they, is, they, is that, what is the interrelation? There? I think they have to do a lot with a little, you know, they, you know very, right. very little. And, and um, I think a lot, I mean, it's, it's very different around Cuba. It's very different even within Havana, there's certain, certain communities. I, when, when you're talking, I'm thinking a lot of old Havana, which is the old you know, colonial right. place, extremely densely populated and um, crumbling, yet very beautiful. And uh, you know, people are all over each other there. Uh, and it's one of the poorest places as well. Uh, but there, I think, you know, it, it does apply where they've got to, like, they've literally got to help each other because they've, you know, there's no, you know, no food over there. You know, they'll say, you know, someone's telling me some story like there's one telephone and you answer it and it's for someone who lives like three blocks away. And there's like, thing. hey, yeah. tell Maria there's a call. Tell yeah. Maria there's a call. Tell Maria. Yeah. I mean, not that, I mean, not that that's something to aspire yeah, you to. You can't romanticize yeah. it too much because yeah. they're like, this sucks, but yeah. Really, well, they want out, I yeah, guess, right? Yeah. So yeah, they want, and and I mean, and there's also, I mean, there's sort of a new middle class there as well. So there's mm. richer areas where people are much more scattered, much more aware of uh, the outside world. You know, they've, they've got iPhones. So it's starting to, and there's that. But it, when you're saying, it really reminds me of or the special period. You know, like back in the '90s, where things are like, you know, it's it really is it's medieval. You know, it's like you, you know, you can't communicate, and you know, it's everything's personal. Uh, someone needs to get to the hospital, you, you get them to the hospital. Someone needs a certain type of drug, you give them a certain type of drug. Someone needs this, whatever. Someone needs, you know, the uh, food, or you know, a, a very intense, in, in, you know, a very um, you know, tightly wound, bound sort of uh, community. Uh, but yeah, to to romanticize it. I don't know. It's, uh, there's, there's great things that came out of it, but they would probably do almost anything to get out of it. Right. You know. And, but the creativity is something because, like, you know, they got a guitar. You know, it's like, and then, you know, it's then there's a party. It's like, 
whatever. Mm. But for the younger people, it's it, 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 there's also a sense of ennui. There's a sense of hopelessness because mm. you know there's there's fuck all to do. Right. They can't afford to go to the bars. The little bars. The tourists have got the bars. Uh, they can get, maybe get a bottle of rum on a you know a good day and go stand by the waterfront, you know, and talk and whatever. And and that's fine. But it's just there's no hope. Mm. There's no you know jobs or anything interesting you know know, so I mean having said that you know you can go to if you can get into university become a doctor travel you know they'll be sent to Africa or to South America so there's there's that but right you you recently published an article which I haven't yet read uh, in the New York Times about what was it about the the sex life this this was about fashion a fashion okay yeah yeah it was about um the idea of the, uh, the gorillas, the uh, Fidel and the gang as the first hippies, you know, this sort of, because this is like 1959, they, they roll into town, these young, yeah, sexy the beards guys, and all that. the beards, the uniforms, the berets, right. uh, they're all young, you know, they're all in their 20s, some, some of them are teenagers, they've just overthrown this uh, very badly dressed sort of dictator who's like very sort of billowed hair and like this slimy sinister sort of character and uh so they waltz in and the women as well they're you know they're like the women you know toting you know guns like bonnie parker you know it's like you know um so a very attractive sort of bunch and i i, I never even thought about it until i was leafing through the magazines like life magazine or um or look or all these photo magazines and all the ads are of like you know, clean-cut guys with their hair done and briefcases going off to work, women polishing floors, the ideal housewife. And then there's these stories about these Cubans and they're all, like, running around. Raul's got his hair down to his shoulders, you know. It's like, they're all, in, you know, just, like, doing whatever they want. They want, you know, mm. like, very sort of attractive, like, you know, rebels with a cause. Mm. They're all sort of, you know, many of them are very, quite educated. Mm. And the cracks at that time are already forming in the, um, you know, in the Cold War facade in the United States. So you've got, you know, Ginsburg's published Howl, Kerouac's On the Road has come out, uh, Simone de Beauvoir's Second Sex, is, you know, has been translated. So mm. this sense of dissatisfaction, had it was already there. The, mm. the thing that we think of, think of as the 60s right. was already gestating in the 50s. Right. We just, people just didn't know that was what was happening. And so it taps into these chords and so you start to see in the 60s this radical chic coming out and um you know it's, a lot of it has the, the radical pro- chic there yeah. it is never thought of that yeah, phrase it, that way yeah, yeah. i mean he, tom wolf invented it in 1970 but like the black panthers very consciously took the che look right you know made it their own right you know but a very threatening sort of you know very sort of sexy you know set of images that you know they can just put together right and then you're talking 59 so then kennedy was elected when 60 yeah and uh yeah, yeah and and just you know shots thereafter and yeah so, yeah. so the young, so young, young good looking yeah. his wife camelot all that shit yeah. so it's sort of the whole in in american politics and then also the cubans sort of rode that same wave I right guess, yeah. right and they were very popular yeah. in the united states i mean fidel came to um, new york in just after he, just after he won and he was mobbed you know he came to penn station right. and like twenty thousand people get him and they carry him on his, his shoulders was that when he was on the tonight show uh yeah he was on on the ed sullivan show in um uh, just after he won in uh, you know in in Cuba in January, uh, and then there was the Jack Parr show. Jack Parr, they all right. went down. They mm. all went down to interview him. And then when he came up, you know, he was he was giving. He went to the Bronx Zoo. He went up to the Empire State Building. People following around. He gave a speech in Central Park for thirty thousand people. You know, mm. and it's like, you know, he was he was beloved. You know, and uh, uh, 
it's, it changed very quickly. It was very superficial. Was it a six-hour speech? It wasn't. I apparently kept it under. He still has the record for the longest speech ever at the United Nations. Really? Yeah. <laughs> Which he gave the, on the second visit after everyone decided, the government, the Eisenhower administration decided they hated him. And so instead of like loving all his, his you know, the outfits, you know, he was called El Beardo, you know, like the, the knight in shining armor turned out to be a bum without a shave. It was what like Senator Goldwater said. So it was like suddenly it had all been, you know, suddenly there were like dangerous louts and they all moved to Harlem. And so they all move there, and, but the African Americans like love him. Malcolm X comes and meets him, and you know mm. they're all hanging out up there. They're going to Harlem diners, you know, very, um, you know, they really capture a, you know a very, such a rebellious thing. So, so uh, you know, so, so my college kids were like mobbing him still, you know, knocking down the barriers. Yes, it reminds me of the fact that uh, Ho Chi Minh thought that the Americans were going to help him oust the French. Because he knew American history and considered mm. America to be sort of the you know prime example of rebellion working out. Yeah, all this liberty and freedom, yeah, all that sort of all stuff, that, all the, the all shining your, ideals, all the talk about democracy and yeah. freedom and self determination. Yeah, and and Fidel really thought he could speak directly to the the American people. He, in fact, the police he drove the police, the New York police, nuts because he. Would, leap over barricades, shaking hands, saying, I must greet my people, I need to greet my people. Wow. And it's like, they, they thought he was just going to be killed, you know, like some, yeah. you know, Batista you know, fan. You know. Uh, so he thought that he could really, like, convince the people. And, you know, at one stage he was in the hotel and he started doing a little dance. They're starting to understand me. They're starting to understand me. And, in fact, the Americans... He didn't speak English, did he? Yeah, his English was quite good. Oh, did he? Oh, was yeah, it? he studied oh. in Jesuit school. Ah, so he would okay. actually do interviews quite charmingly in this sort of broken English and he'd be grasping for words. And, you know, he was like... You know, he was 32 by then, so he was, he was much older than most of them. Like, he was like 28, 29. Right. Everyone was younger. But he was, like, he was kind of sweet-natured. And he was like there trying to, hmm. you know, trying to talk and, you know, come up with the words. So he's, he's, he's kind of charming, you know. So spending as much time as you have in the, you know, halls of the archives and all that, do you have any insight into the Kennedy assassination? Do you think Cuba had any involvement in that? You know, I, I think what happened was uh, after the Bay of Pigs, they got these Cuban exiles and this... Yeah, explain the Bay of Pigs. Okay, so, so this is like uh, uh, 61. Things have really gone south between... You know, the relations have really got soured. Is this you know, before the missile crisis or is, is after? The, yeah, 61 is the Bay of Pigs, 62 is the missile oh, crisis. Okay. So, so what happened is Eisenhower had authorized uh, assassination attempts and and the, for the CIA to get together some sort of uh, invasion plan. And uh, JFK in- inherits this. And he's like, okay, we can do this, but we've got to make sure that it doesn't look like America's involved. It's got to look like it's all coming from somewhere else. Nevertheless, the CIA gets, CIA gets all these... You know, Cuban dudes, uh, disgruntled guys, and sort of right, trains exiled them to Florida. To people Florida. who, so who that, fled and are pissed off because the revolution confiscated their family property and all their money. Yeah, so there's and a lot of them, angry Cubans. And in some Florida. of them had fought with um, Fidel, alongside Fidel. Oh, really? Yeah, but they sort of felt betrayed by his sort of leftward drift, and the, and the Russians are starting to sort of hover around and you know get involved. Uh, 
not nowhere near as much as what, as what happened. But um, so they're all trained in Miami camps and stuff. And like, you know, this New York Times reporter goes down and says, like, what's going on? We're training <laughs> mercenaries, basically. And uh, so but then they go off to um, the Dominican Republic. And so they stage this invasion, assuming that they're going to have air support, American air support, which they get for a bit. But then uh, JFK calls it off. So like 1,500 guys... Calls off the air, air support. support. So 1,500 Cuban guys land. And they suddenly they realize that they're not getting... They're sort of cut off, and the Cubans are like surrounding them and like pounding them, and they eventually surrender. And you know they they put put in prison, and like a year later, they given get back to the United States. They're traded for um, medicine. You know, Fidel. Mm. You know, JFK does that. The, the end result of that is that you've got fifteen hundred extremely pissed off uh, Cubans who not only hate Fidel, they also hate. JFK, they feel betrayed. Uh-huh. So some of them like go into organized crime, you know, in Miami and in uh, New Jersey. Weirdly enough, uh, there's a great book about that. You know, uh, the corporation they get involved in all sorts of stuff, and then they're working with the CIA on anything that they, they can do. So this is where the conspiracy theories come from. I have no idea whether really. You know, it seems pretty unlikely. Certainly, Castro would never have, you know, been okay. involved. Okay, so I never, I never understood that. I always thought when they talked about Cuban involvement with the mafia and you know the the assassination, I thought it was Castro trying to get back at the United States for having authorized his assassination, poisoning his cigars and all that shit. You would think so, right? That would be But this makes more sense to me actually, yeah. given the historical context. You're saying these guys felt betrayed because JFK sent them out there, didn't support them, left them yeah. there to be captured or killed. Yeah. And yeah, extremely then, disgruntled, yeah. extremely pissed off. You know, it's like, you know, Whereas Castro, he said, you know, when he was talking about would he be involved in that, you know, they would they would wipe my little country off the map, right. you know. It's just right. like there was no, he, there was no percentage in it. You know, yeah, nothing... the last thing he needs is to give them a reason to invade. Yeah, for real. Yeah, yeah. Isn't it interesting how disgruntled only exists in the negative? There's no gruntled. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. how are you doing? I'm I'm gruntled. I'm yeah, a gruntled employee. Today. I'm yeah. feeling great. Yeah. yeah. It's always a disgruntled employee. Right. Disgruntled. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, uh, sorry to go off <laughs> no, on no, that. No, no, I no. notice these things, Tony. Yeah, yeah. I wish someone would pay me for those sorts of insights. <laughs> uh, uh, all right. So you are, since I've known you, before I knew you, you were a travel writer. You were writing for uh, Insight Guides, I think. Yeah. But that was yeah, a long time ago. A long time ago. They were very sort of cultural, weird sort of yeah. beautiful photographs, essays about... Did you set out when you left Australia, you were like, I'm going to make a living writing? Yeah. yeah. I, um, you know, my so uncle... it was kind of a thing in the 80s. I remember travel writing. Yeah. Or maybe just for me. I also was like, eh, maybe I can make a living. Yeah, but I also wrote history and, you know... I mean, travel writing is such a sort of a, a term of like, it's very sort of a ghettoized term. It's mm. like travel writing as opposed to good writing or right. whatever. You know, it's right. like, whatever it is. It's like, so I, I went... You know, I just got a one-way ticket to Argentina, you know, because I, I just wanted to be a correspondent and see what, you know, oh, write so about you whatever. Were, it was more journalism. Yeah, yeah, political oh, okay. stuff okay. What, or whatever, you know, and right. travel writing as well. And the more I traveled around in South America, the more I realized the stories that I was interested in where I, you know, fall under the under the heading of travel writing because, you you know, it can be first person, it can involve literature, where Graham Greene went in the, mm. you know, the 50s or whatever. And, and you know, it 
it's travel writing is this promiscuous genre. Mm. You know, you can write about anything and call it travel writing as long as it's you've, as long as you've left your front door, basically. Right. Right. You know, it's like as long as it's uh, and and you can it's sort of novelistic te- techniques can be used. You can have conversations. Yeah. You can have uh, you know characters. Whereas you know, street journalism was pretty you know it's pretty down the line. It was a fun thing to do for a while. Mm. You know, was, I, I loved it. You know, I was like writing for you know the San Diego Union and the you know the London Daily News. There was something called and you know all these different international things. It was very exciting, yeah. but it wasn't very satisfying. You know, you, you know you do it for a couple of years and you're like okay. Um, so I started getting into more. Um, yeah, more travel writing, more sort of like literary essays about mm. place and, you know, how really how history survives, you know, uh, in certain places, how it sort of repeats itself in a ways and, you know, how how what we think, you know, we're doing something because we're coming up with it. There's all sorts of historical reasons that we're, you know, mm. acting this way. Uh, and then I started doing the erotic um, books as well. And, and that was often... Um, Erotic history books, you know, the Napoleon's Privates right. and the Sinner's Grand Tour and so whatever. So how did that happen? How did eroticism become part of it? Because I was I was interested in history and I was interested in people actually reading my books. <laughs> that was the idea. How can I attract attention to this? Yeah. So yeah. we did one on like ancient right. Roman tourists, for example. Right. And the idea of tourism seems so contemporary and so modern. Yeah. Um, and it was, you know, and, and so you can sort of suddenly make, make this leap across to you know, to millennia and you're like oh wow they're staying in shitty hotels they're like you know complaining about the food they're um you know writing graffiti and buying souvenirs and complain you know all this sort of stuff and so it's like oh okay now i sort of get the ancient romans and and while i was doing that there was often the, you know sexual stuff because that's so such a big deal mm. and I, I would just you know do all these things and then my uh, agent at one stage said like why don't you write a book about you know about you know just a history book of like in anecdotes about history and I was like, okay, but what is? And my, uh, the question was, what makes a good historical anecdote? And first, you know, it was like it has to have some sort of mental leap, you know, where it's like at a dinner party, it's like, oh wow, did you know, you know, Catherine the Great died while she was fucking a horse or something, you know, something, you know, and it was often sexual. Is that true? No, it's not. No, no it's not. just but just she, for the record. But she did choose her bodyguards. She had affairs for sure. She had like a lot. Of, she had an active sexual life. Yeah. She was a strong ruler, strong woman ruler, and she was a great equestrian. So, what happened was when she died, she she died on the privy. She, you know, she was like, you know, she had a stroke sitting on the toilet. Mm. But when she died, she, the, the French got to put these elements together. The mm. French are very clever at this. It's like you know, so she loves horses. She's you know, loves sex, and she's a strong woman roller. So she died while she was fucking a horse. Right. You know, it's sort of a way of you know they did the same to Cleopatra. You know, it's like any strong woman ruler, her sexuality is sort of attacked. Yeah, and it's sort of like she's sort of humiliated. Interesting. And, they wouldn't do that with men, would they? That would that would increase their prowess as rulers. Uh, on the the, the pro propaganda, but like Napoleon is a classic one where his penis became this whole. That's why I called it Napoleon's Privates because the subtext was like, why was everyone obsessed with Napoleon's penis that he had, you know, and uh, because it became an, uh, you know, a, um, or his terrible sex life, you know, that Josephine. And the reason is, you know, I got it. It's kind of like a complete tangent, but um, we are tangentially speaking. So, um, uh, you know. And to just start, the reason I was obsessed with it was that his his penis was removed, according to legend, at the autopsy, and it was bought by you know it went around the auction houses of the world, yeah. and a, a New Jersey urologist bought it in the yeah, 1970s. Is it still in the garage in I, New Jersey? Somewhere? They sold the house, so it was oh. like I got to see it. It was like it became my life's work to see it. <laughs> 
shriveled up <laughs> yeah. little piece of leather. But it was I was interested in why I was interested in Einstein's brain, Beethoven's ear, eardrums, and Napoleon's penis. Right. And it's because um, the British were very clever at propaganda, and they did. And, you know, they, to mock your opponent's sexuality was part of it. So. Uh, he, he married Josephine, who was a sort of party girl. Napoleon, you know, it, it was meant to be a great romance, but it was in fact, uh, you know, Josephine thought it was an arranged marriage, more or less. He's this powerful dude. And so, but Napoleon was genuinely in, in love with her. So he goes down through Italy and he's writing these passionate, you know, letters to her. Uh, you know, like, I, I will kiss you. I will kiss you on your lips, on your breasts, and lower, lower, much lower, and stabbing the letter. It's like he's all hacked off. You know, it's like things like that. He's sort of obsessed. They're famous letters. But Napoleon, as soon as he left, Josephine's, you know, boffing this uh, handsome young hussar. And it's the talk of, you know, everyone knows about it in Paris. And by the time he gets to Egypt, Napoleon's brother comes up to him and says, like, you know, Napoleon, I got to tell you something. Yeah, you know, Josephine's been having it off. With this, um, with this dude, and everyone knows about it. So he writes this passionate letter to Josephine. You know, it's like really offended. He and, can't you know. just have the guy killed. No, no, he wasn't really dictator like in that sense. Mm. You know, it was like he was still a rising. You know, like oh, a, a he wasn't. Figure. The, oh, yeah, he was yeah. still just a. Yeah, general he wasn't an emperor. Yeah, he's just when oh, he's quite okay. young. Okay. So he writes this really wounded, you know, heartbroken letter. Uh, puts it in a, you know, sends it off in the in the fleet, which is of course inter- intercepted and destroyed, you know, by Nelson. So the letter ends up back in London, and the the British publish it on the front page of the Times. Ah. And it's kind of like so, and as well as these cartoons about oh. you know why Josephine is so disappointed with Napoleon. She's in the bed going, like, oh Napoleon, I'm so disappointed that your accommodations are so so petite. You know, it's like uh, so this whole thing about his sexuality becomes part of the the British war propaganda, propaganda machine yeah. so it, was, it so it happened to men as well as women yeah. but it's like but it, it was just so much crasser and more obvious with women I yeah. think you know it's like um, but what was the deal with Cleopatra so she was with Mark Antony right who was what a friend of Caesar's well she first with Julius Caesar right and then uh, with Mark Antony and Caesar's been killed at the stage so uh uh, Caesar's adopted son, Octavius, goes over, Octavian, goes over and there's a civil war. So Mark Antony and Cleopatra are together against uh, Octavian, who becomes Augustus, because he wins. And like Cleopatra kills, kills herself, uh, as is Mark Antony, and so it's kind of a total uh, wipeout. But she was very strong and oh. very sort of like, um, you know... Uh, Demonized, yeah. you know, as like you know, just having destroyed, you know, first Julius Caesar and then Mark Antony. So, uh, you know, there's but and, she didn't destroy them, did she? Well, she sort of weakened in the propaganda. Oh, uh, she oh, weakened them, you I know, see. like with her sexuality, her sort of, uh, you know, um, her exoticism. Yeah, I remember reading somewhere. I was reading, you know, a historical, uh, you know, history of sex. I mean, I read somewhere that lipstick first appeared in Egypt among prostitutes who were advertising um, blowjob specialty. That they mm-hmm. were, if a woman wore lipstick, it meant she gave blowjobs. Have you ever heard that? I have not heard that, but I'm willing to believe it. Yeah. yeah. 
<laughs> it's just funny to see you were talking about how people do things not knowing the historical yeah. context and right. origins. You know, to see women walking around, paint, lips painted bright red, and thinking yeah. like, oh, did you know? Yeah. Interesting like, to think of. <laughs> you know, some women would probably be very happy with that association. Yeah. Others would be shocked and yeah. dismayed. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, these things that become so sort of like proper and conventional that start off really... Yeah crazy right. i mean you see these guys walking around with their pants hanging down and no belts you know like yeah. my understanding is that started in uh prisons because yeah. they would wear baggy pants to hide the guns and the drugs or whatever right. they had in the you know to hide. but with belts of course so then you get to prison you, they take your belt right. so you're walking around with your pants hanging that halfway down your ass right. and now it's a fashion right. like what a weird fashion you know yeah. But that's that's why I basically wrote that story because because fa- sex is one thing, fashion's another, food is another. Uh, these ways of connecting, you know, mm. you, you take any historical period and you think about their fashions or their food or their sex lives. Suddenly, you can connect with them, or the way celebrity worked in, you know, like the Napoleonic Age or, mm. uh, or with Lord Byron or in the nineteen twenties, and how it's changed, and how or even you know ancient Rome, the idea of celebrity was very different. Um, what, what was celebrity like in ancient Rome? It was it, it was more like you, the ruler was something you knew, knew all about the ruler, and you, but you could never you didn't like aspire to be with them. You didn't want to know about you know their uh, their lives in, in the same way. Right. Uh, it was really a romantic era sort of thing, you know, like Lord Byron, Napoleon, as because you know for Julius Caesar he was born you know, Alexander the Great. They're born into this. Right. Uh, it, was, it changed, you know, like Napoleon really blew everyone away because he was like just this everyday sort of a humble sort of guy and he uh, suddenly becomes this incredible hero he's like dominates the whole of, of of Europe he comes out of nowhere so Lord Byron and all, all these English poets you know, rom- you know loved him they romanticised him as this figure and then suddenly this idea that you can invent yourself mm, you know takes hold in Western so you could aspire to be these people yeah now. you could be right. them, or you could be, make your own you know create your own incredible persona right you know create your own uh, future huh. whereas in, in for so much of history you're born into whatever and you know so what about sexuality I mean how is how is contemporary sexuality different from what the Romans experienced for example or or you know medieval or well I mean well, I, I, like homos- people always ask me about homosexuality and how that because I sort of look at you know you know my thing is more um, hunter-gatherer stuff right? right whereas you're you're much more historically based as opposed to prehistorically um, oh, that's sorry. That's my oven. Just <laughs> Topanga oven. <laughs> Topanga oven. Um, but you know, it's very difficult to when people ask me like, "Oh, you know, is is there homosexuality in in tribal cultures?" It's very hard to talk about that because the meaning of the word, yeah. the word isn't exist. what we think. The well, word, the word didn't, didn't even exist, exist until yeah. like the late nineteenth century when uh, you know some German psychiatrists came up with it. Well, and you also know. it was meant as a there was a homosexual act. Right. It was an adjective, but not a noun, is my understanding. So you could have a homosexual affair or a homosexual uh, interaction, right. but to call someone a homosexual right. was impossible. You weren't defined as that. Right. Well, if we go back to the ancient Romans and Greeks, which is kind of like a, a kind of a fascinating situation, they um, they would they wouldn't have even understood the concept because um, you know uh, the. the 
the, the highest ideal of romantic love for the Greeks was for a, a, a grown man for a young boy before the down is formed on the on the cheeks. So that was part of the culture. What do you? Th- what's going on there? It's it was, there's some sort of sense that the older guy would educate the right. younger guy, and sort of in all sorts of things, and then sort of take satisfaction, uh, have sexual relations with the guy. But it didn't mean that the, the kid would then grow up and maybe never, you know. Have whatever we call it uh, homosexual sex again but that was just part of the thing and it wasn't seen as aberrant in any way no but what was aberrant is if you start you did it when the kid's getting older you know uh, Alexander the Great got into terrible trouble because he was he had this young lover that kept up the relationship when the, the kid got older the other thing is uh, it's, it's very political who was doing the penetrating right. so the older guy penetrates the, the younger yeah, uh, if you were, um, you know, and it was a class thing. Was so, it actually anal sex or was it like the penis between the boy's thighs? I mean, the Greeks, were, you know, the modern Greeks are often saying that it's between the boy's thighs. But it's, there's no reason like to... Frottage, is that what it's called? I think? Yeah, frot- frot- frottage. <laughs> yeah, but there's no reason to believe it wasn't, you know, total penetration. It was like, you know... Uh, it's all the literary sources and whatever, you know. Yeah, they don't without, get, they're no photos. Yeah, but I mean, the, the vase drawings and stuff, it's like uh, it's pretty clear what's going on. Yeah, right. Because uh, right. there was a lot of, you know, erotic art that yeah. would, would deal with that. But um, but it, to us, it's so alien. This concept is like, what the hell? Well, to you know, some like, of us. Yeah, well, that, but it's like, <laughs> but the thing that, you know, the, the idea that, oh, take my son, you know. Uh, Educate him. Yeah, Plato. Educate uh, yeah. You know. Yeah, but I mean, what I'm, what I'm confused at there is there's there was no uh, uh sort of um shortage of women right they had slaves they had no. prostitutes that the, no. half the population were women so this isn't an adaptation to a shortage of women um you know like you might see in a prison or on a on a ship you know in the 1700s you know right. among sailors where there are no women you know right. then things happen um so i don't see the the adaptive value of it also, you've got cultures that are trying to increase population. Well, they, they would have the, the idea was like women were for uh, wives were for you know, procreation. Right. So th- there's a good number of the population of the female population, and they're locked away, you know, and they just like have babies, you know, and they like squirreled away. Then there's this uh, prostitution uh, that was going on, and it was very. Um, very elaborate. They'd be like lower class prostitutes, but also extreme. The heteri were extremely. Um, they're like geisha girls. They're extremely right. well educated, extremely sophisticated. Uh, they would come to the dinners. They would hang out in the Bohemian parties. This and is like, Greece or Rome. Would, the, the Romans basically took the Greek thing eventually. So the Greek model became the Roman model after the as the empire. Uh, you know, like around the as the empire was formed, basically around the you know, right. thirty BC. Is this the same as the temple prostitutes? The I mean, there was there was a there, there was an, another thing that the you know they were offerings to Aphrodite, right, In right. certain you know in Corinth and certain areas, uh, but the, the, this prostitution was very uh, you know it was, it was it was really idealized. So you'd have your, you'd have your wife for procreation, you'd have the prostitutes for stimulation, mental stimulation, and for true romantic love, you'd have a young boy. So that was the highest ideal, you know, like a pure sort of love. romantic love. But but you're expected to break it off when he reaches yeah, puberty. Yeah, yeah. Which is so sometimes how, how very young difficult. are these boys? I mean, I, I would let's see. I've been, until the, so until like puberty so like up to about 14 
or whatever. So they're pretty young. So starting at eight, eight nine, eight, ten. Yeah, so, wow, yeah. Jesus. Yeah, which is some to us. It's so alien. Yeah, it's like that. It's so accepted. You know, I'm, you know all sorts of things go on. But have you seen? I think of the dancing boys of Afghanistan. Nah. It's it's a, it, it's a very disturbing documentary. I think it might have been a Vice production. Um, it's about this this thing in Afghanistan where you know because women are so isolated and separated from the men, the the young boys are um, sort of used as dancers right. and they perform at these parties and then are um, used sexually right. by the adult men. Yeah. And against their will. It's like not a right. thing you want. It's not something you aspire to, I guess. Right. <clears throat> yeah. I mean, I think the way, you know, to view any, you can view any, you know, culture and sort of like you get such an entree into their, uh, their so many other things follow on from that. So even like the gorillas up in the Sierra Maestra in the, in the 1950s, I was like trying to imagine what the hell it was like, you know, mm. when Fidel and Che and like a bunch of dudes and these, and these women as well are up there, these... You know, like twenty something bunch of people up there. You know, and they're Latin like red blooded. You know, and sort of what happened? What was it? What was it like? You know, and uh, and then you unearth all these weird stories of like the the love affairs that were there, and the you know the um, you know uh, these romantic connections that would be formed and then fall apart. Uh, one of the great things that I found when I was down in Havana was a diary about this dude Juan Almeida, who was the, one of the African Afro Cuban leaders he was a platoon leader and he had a girlfriend in mexico and they land in in cuba and he's like he's he's got 10 guys and they're wandering around constantly in the villages and he's he's very honest in this diary which was never published hmm. you know about he's lonely he misses his girlfriend and he starts developing crushes on every girl that he meets wandering around it's like every shop girl every uh whatever been he's there like, yeah and it's like every and it's like it's kind of hilarious and then he, he's just writing love poems to some girl and he, I, think, I think she liked me you know it's like whatever and it's kind of like it's so honest and so yeah. heartbreaking and he's got these he does and then he runs into one of the girls who had wound, nursed him when he was wounded and they start this torrid affair and whatever and he's and then the, the platoon's leaving and they have to send some guy back for him like get out of here. On, and then he's hanging around in bed and then she discovers a locket and he opens a locket around his neck and it's his Mexican girlfriend oh. and like she, there's this huge fight ensues and he's right he's, he writes ah but it's better that way you know <laughs> whatever it's like totally unbelievable but but just hilarious all this sort of stuff and there was a whole women's platoon as well mm. as the war went on only women yeah and really? like Fidel started it oh. you know because a lot of women were drifting up you know, they would work in the cities. You know, there's a whole... They, and young students, whatever, carrying stuff, transporting stuff in their petticoats. Right. They, they, they actually sewed special petticoats to put rifles and ammunition in them. And they really played up, you know, the, the sexist policemen had, would never believe that a, a, a girl would be involved in politics to begin with. And then it's sort of... Then they were like, oh, right. And, uh, you know, so they ended up having to flee up to the mountains. So there were all these women guerrillas and, you know... Uh, and they learned, so Fidel started a platoon and he taught them, you know, uh, how to shoot and whatever. And they would go down into combat. They, they wanted to be in combat. Mm. So photos of that, for example, photos of them in American newspapers and magazines in the, in the late 50s. Like, what the hell? You know, I was like, what, right. you know, these, these women are like, you know, and, and this is like 25 years before the women are allowed into West Point or whatever. And, right. you know, it's only now in the, in the like the British uh, military that women are allowed equal status so where do you come down having spent so much of your life like looking at other cultures both contemporary and, and historically 
Where do you come down on the question of cultural relativity? Um, like, do you, you know, here we are talking about, you know, Greek pedophiles. Right. Do you, do you feel any sort of judgment around that? Or do you feel like only as it applies to contemporary cultures? Uh, it's a tough one. It is, it's isn't like, it? I guess, you know, you can describe it, you know, and like depict it. But, uh, you know, we're in today you know we can get you know, other cultures and it's like oh do we let them do that right that, you know female circumcision thing yeah that's such a great cultural thing you know it's like yeah so um where you draw it seems to be it always seems to be a shadowy ever shifting sort of thing yeah uh some things you just like you know and with the ancient greeks you can't you know you know the pro or against it it's like that's what it was it's like because it doesn't affect your life right, right. Now. there's nothing you can do about it right uh the only way it affects life is like when people sort of you know, try and exp- uh, look at the past and say what's possible. You know, like that this is normal because this is what happened here or here. It's like the way we do things. You know, if some you know, observed by an outsider, it's probably completely insane. How are you living like this? You know, to an yeah. ancient, you know, ancient Roman or ancient Greek, you'd be like, what you? you know, or to an 18th century, you know, British gentleman, it's like, well, how can you be surviving like this? You know, it's there's a-, a great little essay I read. Uh, a while ago I've mentioned it on the podcast before um, uh, I just looked at it again recently I, Paul Graham is the is the author and basically what he's looking at it's online he's he's looking at um, what we're talking about he's, he's saying like how do you know when you look back at other cultures in the, in history you can see the mistakes they were making you can see their blind spots you can see their their cruelties and all that um, how do we know what we're doing? Because of course we're doing something, right? Mm-hmm. So how do you look at your own time and your own life and see those things that a hundred years from now people are going to go, what yeah. the fuck were they thinking? Yeah. And he makes this point that it's like, you know, people think that they are um, original and, and you know, the, that they come to their conclusions independently. But... You know, he's like, he says, first of all, he says, like, what do you believe that none of your friends believe? What do you believe is true or may be true that you would be very uncomfortable mentioning in front of your friends? Hmm. And if there's nothing, then that either means that you do no independent thinking at all or your friends are right about everything you've ever thought of. Mm. And you think how unlikely that is. It's, it's like, if you were alive in 1972, do you think that you would independently arrive at the conclusion that bell bottoms were a good look? Right. You know what I mean? So it's like, so it's a really interesting intellectual exercise to try to remove yourself from the substance of these thoughts and just look at the structure of the thoughts. So he says, taboo is a really interesting place to dig because the thing that it would be like if you said everyone in pittsburgh is 10 feet high nobody would give a shit because you're just eccentric and and wrong right but if you said uh homos you know pedophilia is a sexual orientation people are born with that might make people really uncomfortable Mm. Because they might suspect it could be true. And if it is true, what does that mean for the entire legal uh, system around that uh, issue? You, you know? know, I do a literary series in um, in New York called The Last Taboos. Ah, I, yeah. you know, um, 
I think I, I'm sure you're on the mailing list. If you ever have yeah, in, you, in you send York me thing. these things. Come on down to the East Village, and I'm like, <laughs> I'm in fucking L.A., dude. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, Love know, to be there. I just like to be, you know, make you a little envious or whatever. <laughs> it's like, but uh, but it's interesting an idea of what is it that people can write about that still you know makes people uncomfortable or yeah. makes people it's still controversial. And I always remember like, our friend John Colapinto had written that novel about um, incest, sort of a comedy about incest, and it was like that made people very uncomfortable. It was like, uh, do you remember? I read that. I, don't, I read a novel he wrote. It was one called about about the author, which was very good. Yeah, but, I read that. But the yeah. one where he, uh, a guy, uh, he, it, it turns out to be it's a sort of a conspiracy where um, a young the, the, a young girl goes in, convinces a guy that he's that's a long lost daughter, and he uh, and, and then to seduce him, and she. I think you've described it to me. I don't think I've read it. Yeah. Is it published? I mean, he was writing. I mean, we were out one night in a pizza bar, <laughs> and he was writing about it. And you were going, you know, this is this a good idea to write this? It's like, <laughs> are you sure? You know, I remember so, that night when he, he went to the bathroom. We were in some bar in the East Village. He went to the bathroom, and he came back with a, his arm around two women. Like, remember that? Yeah, it was yeah, so yeah. funny. Yeah. And he basically, he just told them he wanted to, like, impress me that he was, like, the guy who wrote Sex at Dawn was there. And he, like, hired them or something on his way back from yeah. the men's room. He's hilarious. Yeah. Does he still write for The New Yorker? Yeah, I, yeah. I look for his byline all the time. I never see it. And he's on a bit of a sabbatical because um, he's writing a book about the history of the voice, I believe, or the, or the new science around the voice. Oh, interesting. I mean, you know, as far as I, I know. He but, wrote that great book called uh, As God Made Him, I think. Yeah, As Nature Made Him. As Nature Made Him, yeah. um, about this Canadian guy who, guy, it's, pronouns are confusing here because mm. what happened was he was born a boy, there was a botched circumcision, a phrase you never want to hear, uh, and John Money, who was the, sort of the leading sexologist of the day, this was in the 70s, I think, early mm. 70s, it was believed that gender was purely a social construct. So he advised the parents to have the rest of the penis surgically removed and to raise the child as a girl. She'd never know the difference. It wouldn't mm. matter because gender is a social construct. Um, and so the parents did that with all the best intentions and the girl was, let's say, what's, what's the word? A tomboy played with the boys all the time, had no interest in dolls, was playing with trucks, climbing trees, getting, you know, bruises on. And then, uh, in adolescence, she decided she was a lesbian and then, uh, when she turned 18, I think, or maybe before that, she was told the truth that in yeah. fact biologically she was a boy and so then she did a sex change operation yeah, yeah. and he wrote the book together with him mm. and um and then i think he killed himself before the book came out no no I, after well after was what it? happened was because you know uh, John got a, a a good advance and he split it with he the split guy, it i remember you know, yeah. and um and they were you know, as John said, you know, you can you're a, f a fuck up with a quarter million dollars is still a fuck up. So he sort of spent it all, was out of, you know, was was broke basically, and then yeah, offed himself. Uh, mm -hmm. So it was like a few years after the book oh, came out. Oh, okay. Because they went on Oprah together or something. I don't oh, know. It was like really? stuff like that, yeah. Oh, Jesus. And it was kind of like, uh, uh, wow. 
Yeah, but it didn't change his life. It didn't change. You know, yeah. it's, it's a pretty tragic story. Yeah, really yeah. tragic. Yeah. Because everybody had good intentions. Yeah. You know, everyone was trying to do the right thing based on the current knowledge. Yeah. Turns out to be yeah, wrong. Not so yeah. accurate. Anyway, that's our buddy John Colopinto, who wrote one of, I mean, a fantastic essay that I always send people about the Pinaha in the upper Amazon called The Interpreter. Uh, it's also online. If you just Google Colapinto, C-O-L-A-P-I-N-T-O, interpreter, it's about um, this linguist, Daniel Everett, who lived with the Pinaha people. And, I think, and John went up and spent time with him yeah. uh, way up in the upper Amazon. It's a fantastic essay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's, he's a great like a writer. And so, you know, yeah, 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 really well done. Um, I, I wanted to ask you something else. Like, you've traveled more than pro- probably anyone I know. You've been fucking everywhere. What's the most remote place you've been? Jeez. Hmm. Parts of Bolivia. Uh, I went to, and you know, and the first time I was in South America, you can sort of, because there's an Inca trail that's famous in Peru, but there are other Inca trails in the Altiplano of uh, Bolivia. And then you've got to really like, you know, it's like, it's a real schlep, you know, it's like two and a half weeks, three weeks, you know, going in and and you can follow these trails. And and you did that? Yeah, yeah. And so starting off in some place called Lake Zongo, you know, and you're, you're there and it was like. Uh, and there's a thing called the South American Explorers Club in, uh, that they, 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 people leave notes, sort of, you know, conversational notes and whatever, you know, hiking notes. So you, get, you can piece it together from that. But it's not uninhabitable. Up in the very highest parts, it's uninhabitable. But then you sort of wind down and you end up in the Amazon basin. You know, but it's following this weird overgrown Inca, Inca highway that's around. And so uh, that... There's rem- still paving stones there? Yeah, yeah. Wow. You know, and it's just not as famous as the others because it's so remote. And so, and that was... And now, you know, maybe that's even not as remote now, you know, maybe because Bolivia's done a bit better. You know, this mm. is like 20, 25 years ago. Right. Um, but uh, have you spent time with hunter-gatherer people anywhere? Not so, not so much. No. You know, you know. Have you? Have you? you know? Very little. I, I mean, my thing with the hunter-gatherer people is like I never felt, even when I was writing about them, even since Sex of Dawn came out, where it would be pretty easy to get invited along to something. Um, I, I feel like I, I haven't done the work. Yeah, you know, I don't speak the language. I don't. I'm just. I'm just hanging out to yeah. be able to say I've been there. Yeah, you know, yeah. and I feel like that's such a bullshit. It does, it does, does them, them no good. good. <laughs> it's super self selfish, and um, I've had plenty of opportunities, and I just always felt like uh, this is this is doing it for the wrong reason. Yeah. The best way I can respect these people is to leave them the fuck alone. Right. The closest I've come is probably. Um, the Tarahumara people in the Barranca del Cobre and the right. Copper Canyon in northern Mexico. I was down there and saw some of them when I was hiking around. Right. And then also in Chiapas, um, the Lacondon people who are in the sort of jungles around Palenque. Right. I saw some of them when I was, you know, right. bumming around down there. Yeah. But I've never, no, I've never like hiked, you know, two weeks into the jungle to be in a village somewhere. Yeah. 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 
And these days, you know, in light planes, you know, zip into so many places, or seaplanes or whatever. In Ven- I remember being in Venezuela in the jungle there, and it's like... Oh, really? You know, in the, like, the Orinoco? Yeah, but I never met, you know, went to the Yanomami or anything like right, that. But right. it's kind of like, you, yeah. But, uh, yeah, it's a scene. It's a scene. And remoteness changes so much, you know, the idea of yeah. it. You know, I remember being in Nepal and hiking to the, the Mustang Plain, and there was like, uh, you know, this beautiful fortress in the middle of nowhere and it's like no one ever made it there you know there's like one, you know, a couple of rooms where you know, sleep on the floor and there's a giant lock there's like a foot large or whatever the key you know whatever and it's like and you walk up through the Mustang Plain but it was to the border with China right. and so no one could go go along there and you see the Tibetan traders and you sit and have you know butter tea and whatever with the yak traders and whatever it was pretty out there yeah but now i mean they've opened up the border now you know people can go on four-wheel drives up and down there and something uh, it's like neither of those places are really that remote anymore right. you know just because that's that's changed i remember reading the snow leopard when i was in nepal where he talked about the mustang plane yeah yeah i never got out that far i, I never really got past uh Pokhara. I no. I uh, stepped on glass in Kathmandu oh. and fucked up my foot. I was there midwinter anyway, so the passes are all closed. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. That'll do it. So where would you go now? I mean, do you have any any major journeys planned now? Or are you well, doing I've been on such a Cuba jag for yeah, so long. Yeah. And it's one of those places where it's, I don't know if it's going to, that might become a very difficult place to visit soon, you know, if, mm. um, for Americans at least. Yeah. The Europeans and the Chinese and whatever, I'll still be going in and whatever. But, um, I've just been commuting back and forth doing that, uh, L.A. and You've been you know. to Antarctica? No, I never have. Never have. Is uh, that the only continent you ever been? Yeah, I guess. Mm. I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't mind, but it's so expensive and so yeah. sort of, you know, and I, I don't know if I've, I'd like to do it in some sort of slightly original way. I don't know. Or, or does, you know. How, you know do you, <laughs> how do you do it in an original I way? I don't know. Stuff. I don't know. I mean, maybe yeah. staying on the American base down or some research base down there or something, yeah. you know. Have you yeah. seen Herzog's film about it? The, the I didn't, but I heard oh, about it. Yeah, oh, yeah. it's fucking great. It's yeah. called uh, Encounters at the End of the World. Yeah, and they're all going crazy down there. Well, it's just, it's it's so cool because he, he ends up doing the movie about the people who are there. Yeah. So the characters, you know, what kind of person ends up working, right? Uh, fixing trucks at the research center right. in, in McMurrow yeah, Bay. Yeah, or childhood dream. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, uh, it's really cool. Yeah. Um, all right, let's let's wrap this up because I got to finish packing the van, dude. <laughs> right. Yeah. Is this enough for you to get a write-off, do you think? Yeah, easily. I think. <laughs> <laughs> I'll get you to sign it. <laughs> sign the receipt, yeah. Uh, Tony Parotet, uh, author of many books, Na- Napoleon's Privates, Naked Olympics. Uh, Sinner's Grand Tour. Sinner's Grand Tour, which was great. I read that one. The, there, was, um, there was one called Off the Deep End. That's was... where you you went. You were in like the Marquis de Sade's castle or yeah, something. You got yeah. invited to a dinner party. Uh, it was owned, it's owned now by um, Pierre Cardin. Right. Uh, and somehow you met him in a yeah. restaurant or yeah, something. I wanted to get into the dungeon. Yeah. So I was like, no, I stalked him. You know, you stalked so him. I would sort of right. jump out because he basically owns this village, and I would just pop out from behind doorways <laughs> accidentally. So, accidentally. Yeah, you know, hey, yeah. yeah. Remember me? You know, and it's like because one of my ancestors worked for the Marquis de Sade, so it's kind of like that was the thing that worked for him. Yeah, what, yeah. Like he was a whipping sort of, boy or something. No, more a you know dog's body doing like you know assistant. 
And then he would do the An renovations. Assistant to the marquee design. Yeah, but he would do renovations in the chateau, and you know. No and shit. if um, you know, I found all these letters in between the two, and it's like, uh, you know, my dear Monsieur Pelletier, you know, it was like, and it, there was one where um, uh, their maid, this this attractive maid, had gone missing, and she was, and like. Andre Perrottet had to write to the Marquis saying, "No, I found her. I found her. She was uh, uh, she was drunk up in the mountains. She'd passed out, but I brought her back. She's fine." And the Marquis said, "Thank Christ, for she has the sweetest ass ever to leave Switzerland." <laughs> <laughs> the sweetest ass to leave Switzerland. Uh, we before we wrap up, I just want to, you know, for the historical record, I want to note a great moment that you and I shared remotely. You were researching one of your books, and you were in the Vatican, right, in the uh, pornographic bathroom there uh, <laughs> from fifteen sixteen. Really? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Raphael painted it for. Uh, and you were in the bathroom. You- uh, I got in, and it, it, was a, it wasn't a toilet; it was an actual bathroom in the traditional sense. Ah. And it was a cardinal, a very sort of progressive cardinal, because uh, they were all into pagan art back in the Renaissance, and they and they're not. These guys aren't priests. They're not, you know, men of the cloth. They're like just rich, you know, nobles who, just, who want to work in the Vatican, you know. And so he had a, an annex done, and he got Raphael to adorn it with scenes of mythology uh, and erotic scenes, which had, you know, been found in in the golden um, the, the golden palace of Nero uh, at that stage. So it's, it was a, it was a vogue, you know. So all these beautiful erotic scenes, and it was off limits for uh, for many many years, you know, centuries really. And um, so I had to talk my way in there and go through the, the Vatican process by convincing them that I was a scholar of uh, the, the uses of pagan art in the Renaissance. Um, <laughs> and, you know, getting letters from NYU and all this sort of stuff and going in there and getting into the secret archive and then getting one step further, one step further until finally, you know, they, they, they called me up and said, and the thing is, it's an annex now to where the, the Pope meets, you know, heads of state. Uh, so if Trump ever went over, you, know, right. so you meet him in this place. And so they called me up and said, you've got to come down. There's a 15-minute window to go in. So I rushed over. And, um, you know, these the Swiss guards with their halberds escorted me to this beautiful wooden, you know, this mahogany elevator that creaked its way up. And the doors opened. And there's this beautiful corridor ahead. On one side, there's picture windows looking out over uh, the ruins of the, the Forum. And then the other side, these amazing Renaissance uh, maps, these, globe, these globes of the world, of which, you know, Australia's left out, terra incognita. Mm. The east coast of the United States is sort of vaguely, it's got these caravels flooding. It's gorgeous. And these two guys with halberds escort me down, clip-clop down this sort no of like... No photos. Thing. No photos. Yeah. No video, no photos. Uh, that's what they told me beforehand. But I wish that... You know, I'd got some spy thing going because it's going to like always, even taking a flip. You know, I don't know if you remember these things called flips, these little weird video things that you could, yeah, you know, it's like a yeah. little box that could take videos yeah, before, yeah. you know, and um, I could have just hung it around. I later realized I could have hung it around my neck and they know, would have had yeah. no way, but they were very strict about it. Right. So I went in there and then finally they put me in a room and they met the, the only Monsignor. My Italian's not bad, but they, they sent the only American Monsignor um, from Oklahoma. And I was I had this whole list of things in my head that I was going to tell him about. You know, it's like, you know, about my interest in pagan art. But he opens up the door and, you know, and I was, you know, and I start babbling about pagan art. And he says, I don't know a thing about it. And I'm like, okay. And, you know, and I, I opens up the door and he's like, 
looking around and I'm pointing to these scenes, these erotic scenes where, you know, like Venus is uh, combing her hair uh, and a satyr is looking out from behind the bushes or whatever. And, uh, you know, I I mentioned something about it and he goes, don't know a thing about it. You know, and it's whatever. And I was like, okay. And, um, and then I realized the most famous scene is where Pan is masturbating. It's like that's sort of a legendary scene. And I'm looking around and I realize that Monsignor is standing right in front of it. So I say, Monsignor, you know, Monsignor, can you just step aside? So we, you know, he steps aside and there is the god Pan jerking off. Uh, and what had happened is some Spanish soldiers had like defaced it and gotten rid of the penis, but they'd restored it with this white, this brilliant white you know, uh, plaster of Paris, we're going to restore it. So this glows even more. There's this pan with this huge erection. And uh, we're both looking at it, me and the Monsignor, and he just looks at me and says, don't know a thing about it. <laughs> <laughs> and don't want to. Uh, that was my greatest triumph. <laughs> well, I, th- I think uh, somewhere on that visit, you emailed me from the library right. of the Vatican. Yeah. I'm sitting at home working on Sexatana. I get an email from Tony Chris, you're not going to believe this. I'm sitting in the library of the Vatican, and they have Wi-Fi. Yeah. And I said, you should try to watch some porn. <laughs> I, I think I did. I mean, you did. I think, I I think did. you did. Yeah. But I think you actually mentioned that in the right. book that you yeah. were working. What book was it? Was it? Uh, this was in the Sinner's Grand Tour. Right. Because yeah. I remember reading it, and you mentioned that moment where yeah. I emailed a friend from the library, and, yeah, and he's yeah. like, you should. I was like, yeah, that's me. I'm in the book. That's great. <laughs> All right, Tony Perrotte. Do you have a web page or anything? TonyPerrotte.com, but people have is. to spell my name right. That's P E R O T T E T. No, P E R R O T T E T. There are two R's as yes. well? So, perro, like Spanish for dog. P E R R O T T E T. So, Tony, TonyPerrotte.com. And it's like, oh, you put in Tony pornographic bathroom Vatican there it turns you up you know <laughs> <laughs> or Tony sodomy ancient Tony Greece Tony Napoleon's penis yeah there in fact is. that works as well yeah yeah I'll bet you it know. does so. <laughs> alright Tony thank you thank you alright I hope you enjoyed that conversation about uh, Cuba and sexuality and history and whatever the hell else it was that we talked about uh, don't forget check out sunbasket.com forward slash TS 50% off your first two orders, so that ends up being 30 bucks for each order. Again, no obligation, no hassle, uh, no strings attached. So it's kind of a no-brainer. Uh, definitely check it out and, you know, let me know what you think. Um, yeah, everybody that's tried it and, you know, I've tried it, everybody who's, who's uh, signed up for it and let me know has been very happy with the service, happy with the food, so... Let's help Sunbasket spread the word. All right, sunbasket.com forward slash TS. Um, also, while I'm promoting stuff, I'm going to play the thing with my mom, as I always do with the T-shirts and uh, tangentially reading book and all that. But if you want to do me a solid, if you're planning to read ten, um, Civilized to Death, it comes out October 1st. Um, if you pre-order it either at your local bookstore or at Amazon or however you do it, um, the book or the audio book, which I'm going to be reading next week in LA. Um, it helps out a lot because all those pre-orders count as first week sales. And if there are enough of them, then that sort of blasts it up into the stratosphere and people notice and it gets more reviews and more attention and, and hopefully, um, sort of gets a snowballing effect going. So if you're planning to read the book and if you want to, um, support this, 
I know a lot of you have already bought t-shirts and beer cozies and all the other stuff that has been very supportive and helpful and fantastic. Um, but if you want to do more and you can afford it, um, that would be most appreciated. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Thanks for being part of this community of weirdos. Here's another weirdo, my lovely mom. Okay, Mom, uh, tell people what they can order from the garage. Okay, in our cottage garage, we have lots and lots of T-shirts. Sex at Dawn, Civilized to Death, Vanthropology, Tangentially Speaking, Paleo Modern, and Talking Out of My Ass. (laughs) She didn't like saying that last one. Then we now have some new things added. We've got beer cozies or koozies or whatever they're called. Oh, civilized to death design. They're all civilized to death. We have stickers and car decals, right? Yes. Okay. There you have it. That's Julie, my mom. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm going to die one day. Why do you waste your time thinking about your reputation? Trying to meet an expectation, wondering what they're going to say. Doesn't ask for much A little music and a soft touch Why don't you let it out to play Your heart is in a birdcage Singing in your chest You want to shut it up but give it a rest You're going to die one day Why do we waste our time Thinking about a reputation go down we'll go singing to the smoke alarms we'll dance into the ground